Storygram Network. Hello, trashinistas, dumpster divers, artists, anyone in general. It is trash and fashion season, and the season is open for you to make an outrageous outfit for the Trash and Fashion Runway Show on April 6th. Applications are open, and Trash and Fashion Barbie reclaimed and reinvented, turning trash into trash in for the Barbie Gallery and Auction or the Runway Show. All due in March, applications are available at sonomacommunitycenter.org. What will you make? Hello, we are the Sonoma Community Center podcast, a place of creativity, connection, and community. We highlight the artists, teachers, and the community that come through the doors of our historic brick building, often called the heart of Sonoma. We share local tips and shout outs to our home, Sonoma Valley. And we are your hosts, Molly Spencer. Gerardo Diaz. We are the engagement team of the Sonoma Community Center. Hello there, everyone. Welcome to the Sonoma Community Center podcast. We have today, we're getting close to some very special fundraiser called the Chili Bowl. So today we're launching into the School of Clay. But before that, it's not really School of Clay, but it's everything we want to know about clay. Random questions from the beginning. Um, And we have people here that know the best. Meg Billingham. From Sonoma Ceramics Director and Dan Clausen, <laughs> ex-artist in residence. Sorry, Dan, you know I always do that. I know. And before we launch into that, yay, Gerardo is out sick and we miss him dearly. But <laughs> I have. Why was that a yay? <laughs> yay. I don't know. I'm, I'm, trying, I'm getting enthused. Okay. I'm like, we're, we're setting the temperature here, <laughs> setting the tone, setting the energy. I'm yaying for you. Cat Smith. I have Cat Smith here (laughs) co-hosting her own host on KSUI's show on Tuesdays. What show is that and what time is it? Hollywood and West Napa at 10 a.m. 91.3 91.3 KSBY Sonoma. Yeah. So I'm so excited to have you here, Kat. Yay. And I'm excited to have you guys. I was doing the count and of all our 26 episodes that we've had now for the past couple of years, I think we have a ding, ding, ding winner person that has been on the most. Oh, actually, Dan. I think that's Dan. I think it is Dan. Yeah. Wow. You're a <laughs> celebrity because you're no. way cooler than anybody else I know. <laughs> you are the coolest. <laughs> Wearing my we cool needed shirt. like a confetti cannon to happen at that. Oh, moment. that would have been oh, exciting. Yeah. Would have blown out the <laughs> blown out the mics for Although, sure. I do think you're you're both on your I third up there. spot. Yeah. yeah. So welcome today. It's all things clay and ceramics, and we have all these questions that come out of nowhere about clay. Like, where did it come from? The history of it. What are firings? What are cones? I mean, we're there talking. Was one time, to, Azalea said, "I have to get the order from the mine," and I'm like, "Yeah." The clay this, comes from mines? It does. Yes, it does. It sure does. <laughs> this is what brought it up because a while back we were talking about that you couldn't get a certain type of clay from a mine. We couldn't get a certain type of feldspar, which is still tricky to get right now. And feldspar is? So feldspar, <laughs> it really is a type of rock. So a feldspathic rock 
is a type of rock, usually granitic, so granite rock, um, that has a certain level of mineral content. And minerals like sodium or potassium or magnesium, when they form with other rocks together into feldspars, we use them in our practices. That's essentially what Clay is rock. Air, <laughs> water. That is a exactly. beautiful diagram. Amazing. steam wow. into the rock is, is the clay. Yeah, over time. Very, very old weathering patterns. That is what creates clay. That's what creates right? clay. And then rock being worn and weathered and breaking down with acid. You know how moss takes forever to grow years and centuries and centuries. How long to really get to that material? Has it just been ongoing like is it always finding new clay spots in the world i mean you can find clay in a lot of places yeah it just might not be the clay that you are using in this like ceramic studio oh okay so it's like there's clay on the coast you know you can dig it out i think meg fired at cone one so that's like a low fire it's a lower fire clay but there's high fire clays in lots of places too. The process from like rock to clay can be thousands and thousands of years old because there's often also a geologic and geographic migration of that material and it's gathering other materials. But let's say you have a road cut on the side of the road where clay or rock is exposed in a way that it wouldn't have been naturally. There's been human intervention. That process might be exasperate it might happen much quicker because the weathering experience is much different than if it was happening underground oh interesting and before we go like back into history there's certain different types of clay from all over the world like i know china is where porcelain kind of originated from or is that Mm -hmm. after the fact after it's been fired in a type of ceramics porcelain did originate in china but there are porcellaneous Kaolinitic clays. Those are fantastic words. Yeah, kaolinous, porcelainous, kaolinitic. Very fun. So (laughs) that's your new name. That's your clay name. Porcelainous. Porcelainous. (laughs) Porcelain has a really high kaolin content. That is what's creating what we know to be that like very white, stark color. As far as different types of clay. Is it like harder to work with? Is it like a thinner, more the consistency? I was wondering that too, just because sitting at the front desk and selling clay, I noticed I don't get a lot of orders for the porcelain. Yeah. It's hard to work with. Okay. It's kind of like cream cheese. Ew. Wow. That's the common molding cream cheese. But Mm. it turns out you can also throw on the wheel with cream cheese. (laughs) (laughs) Wait, actual cream cheese? Oh, yeah. Yeah, Have you tried it? I personally know, but I've seen it in action. Oh my god! For your next amazing. party platter, pretty gross. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is gross. It's kind of gross. But, <laughs> but yeah, it throws very similarly. It acts very similar, but it's very smooth. The way it dries is a little different than a lot of stonewares, which is a more common, broad term of yeah. clay. Yeah, us just being in the office and not knowing what's up. It used to say clay, now it's a stoneware and earthenware, maybe? Mm-hmm. We're all, oh, fancy yeah. stuff. I just say, do you want the regular or the porcelain? <laughs> there you go. So if you want to get into the nitty gritty, yeah. there's a few different categories of clay. The biggest ones 
are primary, secondary, and tertiary clays, but the most used are primary and like secondary colors? clays. Kind wow. of like that, but it has to do a little bit more about geographically where that clay was made and where it is now being mined. And so primary clays are kaolinitic clays. Those create porcelains. Those are clay that are quote-unquote very pure clays. That's often how they're described. So they don't have a lot of mineral content added to them that are making them lower temperature. That's why they're very white. They don't have a high iron level in them often because that gets picked up as clay travels. So primary clay is going to be often a porcelain. I will make a, a quick distinction here and say that a clay body that we're working with in the studio is different from just a clay that's being mined. A clay body that has been manufactured that you're buying out of a studio and using will have other materials added to it to make it really workable and fire to a specific temperature that they want it to. It's much more controlled. But clay just found out in the world, primary clay is going to be what will become your porcelain. Secondary clays are clays that have traveled a little bit more away from the spot at which they originated and they've gathered some mineral content or other materials with it. So maybe they're grayer or they have a color content to it because they've picked up yellow iron or iron. Like red clay? Red clay can be a stoneware, can be a secondary clay. Okay. Also tertiary clays would be lower fire clays that have really high contents of iron. They melt at a lower rate. Those are going to be our earthenwares. So that's where you see a lot of indigenous populations working with earthenwares, that's going to be dependent on where they were gathering clay. Clay that's in stream beds, that's very far down this process of, I'm making a hand motion, but I'm not describing it well with my words. Yeah, migration. Those are going to be more tertiary clays. And there's obviously going to be overlap in between there. So hence why as a ceramics department here, we don't take outside clay, but we are able to fire the clay that's here and purchase. So, you know, (laughs) what's in it. Right. And that what could go wrong if they use other clay? Oh, Dan had a face. (laughs) So many things. All I can think of is blowing up. Right. I mean, it's more about well, not more about, but melting's a big thing. Uh-huh. So if you have a low fire clay, like the earthenware and such, and you put it in our cone 10 firing, that's a high fire. It's a really hot temperature. And so the clay body itself will melt and it will glue to the kiln shelves, the kiln furniture, yeah. and can also like ruin your kiln oh if it melts and spills in the wrong way it has been a very major thing in other studios it isn't it can be an expensive yeah to make yeah so cat was coming in because she said someone's got to explain these cones to me so i told you we're coming in on super beginning level knowledge here and uh, you explained because to me it seems like the higher the number the higher the fire but maybe you can explain cone sort of true people come in all the time and say well this is going to be a cone blah 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 blah." we have no idea what they're talking about (laughs) regular or porcelain (laughs) (laughs) so cones are a way that we can gauge what it's not so much the temperature but how hot the ceramic piece is so what you're gauging from the cone is a combination of time and temperature so in a way it is the degrees that 
the ceramic piece in the kiln will be at. So you're not just using a thermometer to check the kiln, Mm -hmm. using kind of a combination of the thermometer, if you want to call it that, Mm -hmm. and the cones. So the cones melt at specific time temperatures. And that's a way for us to gauge how hot the ceramic pieces are. So it can be, you know, like a thousand degrees or something. Okay. But the ceramic piece itself isn't necessarily a thousand degrees. So the cone is what's telling us how hot it is. It's kind of a a different language of talking about heat. Okay, absolutely. I understand that. analogy often for people is, we know cones measure heat work. So think about baking a cookie for 15 minutes at 350 or five minutes at 500 in your oven, right? Time and heat are affecting how fast that cookie is cooking. Would it be like baking if you're all, okay, I'm going to broil this, but it's going to fall <laughs> apart after, that's why you, maybe a low fire clay and kind of give it a little bit more love and longer time. Just like a cookie, you know, 350 at 25, as opposed to broiling it or boiling at 500. That like the consistency, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> not boiling it, um, you know, super hot. Well, you're so, touching on something that is just, it, is the foundation trying for to why translate it, yeah. people fire in a lot of different ways. So people do short, fast fires, then they do very long fires for other reasons, dependent on the clay and the surfaces that they're looking at. When it comes to pyrometric cones, like Dan said, that is the language that we're using to see how hot it is in the kiln for the pieces versus a pyrometer, which is just going to be measuring a temperature in one spot of the kiln. This is a very large thing with huge amounts of thermal mass that we're heating up. And so those objects are going to heat differently than that spot of air where our pyrometer might be measuring. Cones give us really nice range to know. And we're saying cones because they physically look like tiny little traffic cones. Mm -hmm. And they melt by bending. Like if you take your finger and you point it straight up and then you curl it and bend it, that's what a melting cone will look like. Beautiful. (laughs) (laughs) So... When you are measuring it and it's melting, is this a replaceable cone no. situation? It's the same thing. It just kind of goes back to norm. Mm-hmm. No, no, no. no, no. Right. New cones every firing. Okay, and that's what I think. So what you'll I'm see to ask in here. a kiln, you'll see a cone pack. That pack usually has three or four cones that are melting at specific times during the firing to give you information. So early in our gas firing, we call them low fire cones, or we have early cones that melt that will just be puddles by the time we unload the kiln, but they melt to tell us, okay, at this point in time in our firing, we're going to put the kiln into something called reduction. And that cone is telling us that we're approaching that time. So we need to be paying attention. And you'll hear people talk about target cones, Uh warning cones. Warning cones are saying, hey, you've already reached your goal. Don't go too far. (laughs) Top's getting hot. We don't want You know, Mm -hmm. we don't want this firing to get too hot. So where do you get cones from? Is it the people that make the kilns or is it something that you order? Clay suppliers. Clay suppliers. Yeah, you can buy them in like 50 pound. Yeah, you can't just like go to the ocean and find that. No. It's like a (laughs) chemically (laughs) compounded. Yeah. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Gotta find those cones. Cone finders. Yeah. For my home kiln. That's awesome. All can right. we, while we're on kilns, though, because we have several, can, can yeah. you tell us how many kilns there are back there? 
like other secret <laughs> kilns back there. back there. For anybody that hasn't <laughs> been here kiln. before, we're at the community center, the big brick building. If you haven't heard a podcast before, not only do we have two ceramic studios here inside of the building, but outside is a barn, the glaze barn and the kiln shed and many other areas. So that's what we're referring to. And I know there's quite a bit going on back there, but how many kilns do you have or and what types? Because I know, but I... So in the glazed barn, the red barn, we have all of our scut kilns. So that's just a brand, but it's our electric kilns. So we bisque in those. It's really easy to fire. They're and honestly like... It's just when you're doing raw clay, no glaze. That's your first firing your first usually. Firing. Okay. Usually. I'm just saying, we're all beginners here. If you're Absolutely. not listening to School of Clay, what is a bisque? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's a funny word. Mm-hmm. So I know it's always like soup. No. <laughs> Tomato bisque. Exactly. But a bisque is usually your first firing. It's when you're making the clay into ceramic, but you're still keeping it at a low enough temperature that it's porous enough to soak up the glaze that you paint onto it. And then you fire it a second time at a higher temperature, usually. And that is your glaze firing. And that's when you go hot and make it vitreous. And the glaze melts, becomes glass. Great word. Yeah, it's pretty cool. (laughs) We have juicy vocab in our... We do. We do. I want to steal those as names. Yes, so glaze barn. We got all of our scuts, our electric kilns. We do our bisques in there. We do that also because bisking, you have to go really slow because that's going to be your highest risk of exploding clay. Yeah. (laughs) Just because it's holding a lot of moisture. It's the first time that it's going through that really intensive transformation of clay into ceramic. It's going through quartz inversion. So it's just, it's, you know, a delicate transformation. You want to baby it through, (laughs) you know? I mean, that's why we have endless studio monitors, yourself as teachers and directors and ceramic techs. It's a full-time job for someone to always be eyeing when the kiln schedules are happening, yeah. Yeah. right? And Absolutely. It's, I, how do you not feel overwhelmed and a little scared of, maybe not anymore, but like at the beginning of being responsible for all this work going through, <laughs> you know? I mean, we, we still- take very good care of it. Yeah. There's definitely, it's not like every time you enter a piece into the kiln, it's going to explode. Right. So it's like, there's ways to tell, like, you want to make sure your piece is fairly dry. You have a long preheat. You're really marking the temperatures where water boils, where debris burns off and where it goes through quartz inversion. You're going slow through those markers. And the electric kilns, the scut kilns are great because you can program that. So before you would use a gas kiln or wood fire, whatever, and you would have to manually baby it through. It would be like an all day, all night job. But then they made the scut kiln. Yeah. And it's a microwave. When did they come out of? Scut definitely wasn't the first electric kiln to be produced, but electric. Let's figure that one out. Because there's gas kilns, and then I would imagine we'll get into the other depths of, like, wood-fired pits. I'm sure that's the oldest, you know. Pit firing. So pit firing, that's maybe the oldest version of kiln, of converting clay. (laughs) Yeah. Possibly. Probably. Electric kiln sort of started in the 20th century. Okay. Um, With electricity and... 
when I <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, think about the transition of cooking as well. It's going to follow the history of kilns, uh, fuel sources are going to follow that history, right? A little bit. Yeah. Because as soon as we are cooking on wood stoves, people also use propane and natural mm-hmm. gas. They use oil. There's oil drip kilns. Those are oh, much wow. less common now because they can be kind of gnarly. But that is also I, still happening very common. And so any fuel source can be a fuel source for a kiln. Steamboat engine kiln. Yeah. <laughs> Let's go. do that. We'll do river tours. We'll fire your clay while we're on the river. There you go. Oh, my God. It's going to take forever. Yeah. Never going to dry. So then there's the huge gas kiln, right? That's mm-hmm. out in the kiln shed. <laughs> yes. Yeah, that's what we do our glaze firings in. Occasionally bisque, too, if the pieces are really large. Like yours? Yes. Yeah. (laughs) It's best for the high fire just because it's fast. It's also, because it's a gas kiln, you can put it into reduction firing. Okay. And so reduction firing is a special thing where you can get richer, darker colors in your work because you are choking the kiln of oxygen. And pretty much what's happening is with the lack of oxygen in the kiln, the fire and the heat still need something to dig out, have fuel, and it's going to find its way through that clay. So it's pulling out iron. It's pulling out things that would be pulling out the minerals. Yeah, so there's two types of, well, there's more, but generally two types of firing environments, oxidation firing and reduction firing. Oxidation firing happens, and you can do oxidation firing in any kiln. Free oxygen floating, just like we are in this room, around in the kiln. Electric kilns are oxidation firings. Reduction in in kilns and environments are are just like what Dan was describing. You're reducing the level of oxygen inside the kiln. So that fuel source is going to seek oxygen so that it can combust from anywhere that it can. So that's why you'll see videos of people pulling out, we call them peeps, their little spy holes in our kilns and flame shooting out of them because that flame on the inside of the kiln isn't receiving enough oxygen to combust all the way. So it's going to shoot out and find it wherever it can. So you open that hole and boom, it's going to seek the oxygen outside of the kiln. Like Dan was saying, it's also going to find chemical oxygen inside of your clay. And in the process of of using that chemical oxygen, it's going to pull hematite and iron to the surface. and It's going to chemically change what that clay body looks like or the glaze looks like. That's very cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we do that here. We do I know. <laughs> and then there's the special kiln, the soda kiln, right? That came down. Describe that one a little bit because I love the effects that come out of a soda kiln, but I know it's a very picky, tricky little. You want me to talk about that? Yeah, I feel like I've been thing. talking about the kiln. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so my background is in wood salt firing. I love and that. And salt firing is a similar type of process to soda firing. Both are talking about sodium, introducing sodium to the kiln in some capacity. So our soda kiln here is a gas soda kiln, and you can have soda kilns or salt kilns that are combined with other fuel sources like wood. And what we're doing is we're putting the kiln into our reduction environment. We're firing it like we normally would. And then when we get to our peak temperature, so that could be mid-range like cone 5, it could be cone 10, 
And for those that don't know cones, cone 10 is the highest temperature we fire to here. That's about 2,300 degrees Fahrenheit, just to give you an Ooh. idea of how hot that is. I was thinking is. this room was hot. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and so when we hit that peak temperature, we will introduce soda, we call it soda, soda ash or sodium carbonate for soda firing into the kiln through some way. Uh, you guys are all familiar with a form of sodium carbonate, sodium bicarbonate, which is baking soda. So we use that in our everyday lives. Sodium carbonate is just a different refinement of a similar material, and we introduce that into the kiln. There's a lot of ways to introduce it. We, for our kiln, dissolve it in water and spray it with a metal nozzle. Directly onto the worker Directly into the kiln. Okay. And it does a process called volatilization, so it becomes immediately airborne and it, and it melts onto the surface of the work because that soda, sodium, is a mineral. Just like we were talking about with feldspars, we have soda feldspars, so it's a mineral. And minerals flux out, many of them, not all of them, flux out our clay. So they help to melt the surface and help create a glaze effect on pieces inside the kiln. Which is, I guess it's not all like that, but I always thought like soda kiln, it turns out looking kind of like it got sprayed with soda. Like it has that sparkly kind of, it's kind of sparkly, it's, like sparkly it's a little water. glossy and yeah. there's, Love you it. can see action captured. So you can see where it was hit most inside of the kiln with that soda. So that is describing a type of firing that we call atmospheric firing. Oh, so it's utilizing that. atmosphere, the melting of ash or the introduction of soda or salt into the kiln to create and work with the environment inside of the kiln during the firing to create the surfacing that's on it. I was telling Dan when before we were filming, because we were reading our ceramics Bible. It's a book that's sitting in front of us. Um, <laughs> what book is that in case anyone wants to dig deep? It's literally called the Ceramics it's Bible. The ceramics Bible <laughs> it's called the Ceramics Bible. It's a great introduction to just the vastness of knowledge that's in ceramics. And it's a great reference. If you're like, this thing is happening in the studio and I don't know why reference. The ceramics Bible. Bible. It's by Louisa Taylor. And there's like a bunch of editions. I think. Yeah. I don't know what yeah. this one is. It's, it's like in every community studio. <laughs> yeah. It's a staple. I think it's a Bible. But in there, it talks about other methods of introducing soda or salt. So my background in wood salt firing we introduce what we lovingly call salt burritos. Instead of <laughs> dissolving sodium carbonate into water, we use just table salts, large, chunky table salt, sodium chloride. And we pour five pounds of it onto some newspaper and we wrap it in a burrito and we chuck it into the kiln. That's so fun. I know. I mean, who, who figured that one out? It's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Who figured that one out? <laughs> That's so cool. Another firing technique I'm curious about, which is awesome, Raku. Mm -hmm. oh, Talk yeah. a little bit about people that might not know exactly what Raku is and how oh, it happens and how cool it is. You got to <laughs> see a Raku firing when Ken Carmine is our person April. that comes in. To, oh, he's back in April. He's back if you're in listening, April, baby. Folks, Raku firing with Ken. He's amazing and fun. Raku, outside, looks like. Trash Explain can. it to me. Trash in trash can. cans. Yep, it's literally. trash can firings. Trash can firings. Just in time. Yeah. Raku firings are great because they're a way to introduce people into atmospheric firing without feeling really overwhelmed about it. 
I feel Sometimes like it's really cool Roman. looking. So like yeah, a young a teenager interested in really getting some fire going and yeah, you get to play producing some work. And it's this fast. Is so yeah. it's like another way to hook people in because it's the kind of the only folks. thing in ceramics that's fast. Yeah. Everything else is quite a time commitment and yeah, overwhelming with information of what's going on, what's happening. Raku, you can do it in a day. Raku really took off in the 70s, didn't it? American Raku. American Raku. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Thanks for correcting me, but I kind of remember hearing that term a lot. One thing I didn't know about Raku for a couple of years ago is if you're making a Raku vase, it does not hold water. Am I correct? It's technically going to still be porous. Okay. You're not bringing it to a very hot temperature, so it's not very vitreous. Because it's quick like yeah. that. All right. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. But really cool effects. The color effects are really interesting. The general process is to put it into a kiln, usually a modified kiln, because you're lifting the lid at a certain point. You stack your work into a kiln. You fire it until it's red hot. And by red hot, we physically mean you open the kiln, you look in it. Are your pots glowing? That's the easiest way to figure it out. People often measure with pyrometers and other things. But red hot, you open that kiln and you take tongs and move your work red hot from inside the kiln into some form of combustible. It is often a trash can full of newspaper and sawdust. You put it in that trash can, you close it with a lid, and that work gets the effects of the um, (laughs) combustible. I'm getting notes on my mic holding. Sorry, my hands are waving everywhere. You get excited. This really is a play 101. She's demonstrating for us. (laughs) The work inside of... The trash can gets the surfacing of that atmosphere that you've created yeah. in there. So that's the like, that's the down and dirty quick version of Raku. How are we even going to wrap this up? I feel like we're PBS radio, like, uh, it's uh, endless. It's that's, endless. That's the problem. We're not going to yeah. wrap it up, but maybe we'll move on to, unless you have any other questions question. yeah, about the, the process. The uh-huh. oh, yeah. What are those? Are those minerals? What are you using? When you glaze a piece, what are you adding to it? Yeah. Because it's not paint. (laughs) Okay. I always mess this up, so you'll probably have to do this. But it's pretty much like three main Mm -hmm. components. Components. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You got your flux. Mm -hmm. And I forgot the other two. Okay. This is great. There you go. This is great. Okay. So (laughs) clay and glaze are sort of the same thing, but also very different in many ways. But you can think about them as different ratios of the same ingredients. Okay. So okay. clay is going to be very high alumina content, higher silica content, and a lower flux content. Glaze is going to be very high silica, usually very high flux, lower alumina content. And so we play with those basic ratios. And within those categories, there are lots of materials that fall within those categories. We play with them to create recipes that allow us to surface work or build a clay body. So when someone's buying a stoneware, they're purchasing a clay body and that clay body is going to have a specific ratio of a specific amount of materials of those three categories. Okay. All right. And glazes can be modified and created to fire to many different temperatures. So you can take a glaze that melts at a very high temperature like cone 10 and you can up the flux content, which lowers the melting point. And now you can fire that glaze at a lower temperature. 
Okay. If that makes sense a little bit. So you're playing with these ratios, like driving a car. You have the car, you have a gas pedal and a brake yeah, pedal. Yeah, you're just kind of driving the San Francisco hills. There with you your go. <laughs> yeah. Isn't it nice that we have a place in Sonoma where you can come be a member, make your art, and then somebody else has to think about all that science? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's super cool. And also, if you want to learn the science, yeah, we that's often what all will... these classes are about. Yeah. That's the beautiful thing about clay is that. I when, have a question yeah. too about there's glazing, your, your standard. I can see how like if you're doing texture work, then you're probably glazing it. But people that come in that do painting onto the clay, like how does that happen? Does it get like a glaze and then they would paint, say, like a portrait on a plate that I have from Kate Knudsen that's beautiful or etching onto a plate? Like when does that happen? Do you like glaze first and then you paint it and fire or do you paint and then fire? There's a thousand different ways. So there is. There's no one way. There's many yes. different ways that can be done. Yeah. So That's there's cool. under glazing. Okay. Which is something that happens when people paint formulated materials called underglaze uh-huh. onto bisquare, and then they'll dip it in a glaze afterwards to make it shinier. Ooh, there's I also like that. over glazing where they glaze it and then they paint and then they fire it again. Wow. I thought overglazing is when people come in to do the glaze drip. Oh, that would be me. Is that when you have a heavy <laughs> hand? Like if you have a glaze drip in the kiln, they have to come in and pay a little oh, yeah, fee. The drip be, fee. The drip uh, fee. What, what has happened that, in there when somebody walks yeah. in and what says, I need a to drip pay a drip fee? They always look really like they a little embarrassed yeah. and look like ashamed. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like that would be me completely. Is that the heavy handers that are just putting too much glaze? It can be. So different glazes also fit to different clays. And they can be really runny. They can craze, which is kind of that like crackle look to it. But usually at like a community studio, you have kind of this whole range of pretty consistent glazes that you can use. But there's usually still some that are super runny or don't fit super great with specific clay bodies. But most commonly, the drip thing is you dipped it for too long and it's a really runny glaze. And so it pretty much just melted all over the kiln shelf. And then... And now somebody has to clean it up. And then I have to clean it up. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, it makes sense. But yeah, not necessarily is it always a user error, you know? Like sometimes glazes can be mixed and just the ratios are slightly off. And so it just ran more, melted more. As this studio rolls, do you get most of your glazes pre-mixed or do you all mix up your own glazes, right? I know that from the chili bowl It becomes financially not particularly smart to pre-buy, unless you're incredibly wealthy space, to pre-buy glazes in the capacity that we use them. We have about 40 glazes here that we offer to our community, and those glazes are stocked in 15-gallon buckets. So if we were to purchase that material already mixed, it would would be be so expensive. Immensely expensive. So we buy our materials, because most glazes, like we mentioned earlier, are different ratios of the same ingredients. Mm-hmm. We buy all of our raw ingredients and then we mix them in house. Okay. Let's back it up here. <laughs> <laughs> to Yeah, I looked this one up. But oh. Is it 14,000 BC? This is what I found out. Clay was the first medium for writing. Yep. Apparently. 
Mm-hmm. Clay tablets. That's cool for school. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, it's that old as a material. And yeah. Yeah. Predates paper. Predates paper. Probably first cooking, really, utensils, do you think? Actually, the first ceramic object that or we vessels. know of yeah. is a, a depiction of the fertility goddess. Mm-hmm. Really? Mm-hmm. So it was a, a ritual object that was built. That's the first okay. oldest mm-hmm. clay object that, that we know of. Is that a sculpture or a plate? Sculpture. Or is it the little chubby goddess woman? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I love her. And yes. <laughs> there's new theories now. If you see a photo of, if you look up this object, if you see a photo, you'll see the proportions are captivating in particular ways. And there's theories now that propose that it is a self-portrait because if you are a woman and you look down at your oh. own breast, if you look down at your own belly, the way that you see it yeah. is the way that it is. I mean, this predates mirrors, right? So yeah. the way that it's depicted is, I don't know if that has been, and been proven. I, like I, I remember though. reading that. It it makes yeah. Sense. yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, that is what took them how long to figure out that that's maybe a different perspective mm-hmm. of looking, <laughs> looking <laughs> yeah. down. Yeah. Um, that is cool. And then just through the centuries, right? Through mm-hmm. the Egyptians, through the Greeks, everybody's kind of had their voice. And when you're learning about first learning about like history of clay, you know, nothing, blah, blah, blah. And you're learning the history. Are there certain eras and certain types that it attract your attention or Meg attract your attention more so than others? Oh man. I feel like extra pressure. (laughs) I'm like, I I studied art history that I'm like, Oh, I should know what I I'm attracted to in history. That should be the wrong words because lots of times we make our own from combinations, obviously of the past. So many different eras form what's happening now. But I think what always like struck me is this, it's less a time period and more this clay is so often used in these very old and new kind of burial totem guardians like there's yeah yeah, there's this kind of interesting thing that happens throughout the centuries that crosses cultures where when people die we grieve and then we somehow seem to find ourselves in clay and there's so many funerary objects burial objects all these grief markers that are created out of ceramics and I think to me, that's the most captivating thing is that I feel like that's what makes us human in so many ways. And to see it, one of the second oldest like ceramic figurative pieces, I want to say it's like still 2000 BCE, something very old. But it's these two ceramic figures that are sitting and they are known to be sitting at a burial site. And it's like these two people in mourning. And they're the place markers for the people who are actually mourning. Oh, interesting. So it's this long history, I think, that's very human, but it goes all the way to 2000 BCE that we've been having these big feelings (laughs) and expressing it through clay. Probably 20,000. I think 20,000. I mean, Venus is 29,000 BCE. Probably missed to zero. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Definitely. I'm, I'm sure you're yeah. going to grab what you have. It's all the elements that make up our, especially spirituality and going through those processes of our rituals, shall yeah. you say, be it birth and death and everything else, cooking, even its own thing. Mm-hmm. So, And then I'm we sure, find clay. Yeah, and I think exactly. that's super fascinating where it's like, we didn't 
necessarily like draw pictures or like we did right. do that too. But it's like, it's so fascinating to think that the material that we gravitated towards in those moments of grief or transformation or change was clay. Yeah. This material that does transformation. It is about you know. transformation. Yeah. You know, it's one of those things, few things that can really, mm-hmm. yeah, I get it. I get it. That's, yeah. that's amazing. What about you, Meg? And your relationship kind of to your sculptor potter sort mm-hmm. of combo of both. I mean, mm-hmm. we can go down the rabbit hole of the class that you just had as well, using clay in a <laughs> different yeah. way of expression as well. Dan and I are teaching a class right now called On Clay and Holding, and it's all about different ways of moving your body with clay. And ultimately, it's really Dan and I nerding out together about people <laughs> that we love that we work love with our clay, clay nerds here. And <laughs> getting people to do things that make them feel a little bit uncomfortable in the studio. But I think to just jump onto what Dan was saying as well on the functional side of that too, I am just deeply constantly in love and in awe of how reliant we are on this material in ways that we do not think about on a day-to-day basis. We wake up and we pee in ceramic and we wash our hands in ceramic and we cook in ceramic in our brick oven and then we go to work and all of the water that we use during that process was carried often by ceramic pipe through the underground and we walk to work on ceramic tiles and we come to work in a ceramic building (laughs) and we exist because this material is holding us there. Another transformation kind of element of Mm -hmm. all those elements coming together to make us continue (laughs) and and be able to move through life easily. It is, we talk about it as being a deeply fragile and delicate material ceramic. And, and yet some of the oldest objects that we have that depict humanness and civilization are ceramics. It's often the marker of finding civilization in a new geographic area is that we find a pot or we find a piece of a pot that is still in existence 29,000 years later, 30,000 years later. It's this thing that is so deeply referential to the human experience and the way that we build relationships together and is so deeply connected to our current identity and our ancestral identities. And it has its own geologic migration and ancestral history that it's carrying. So that is what I'm constantly returning to with clay and in awe of. I, wow, you've really... And it, yeah, it's on sighting. It, yeah, it is, I ceramic feel is like on our like, spaceships that's going into space. Oh, really? We don't even yeah. think they're about it. They're the like, tiles it's everywhere. Because, it's the thing that will melt. So they are the tiles on the side of space shuttles. Yeah, I was going to ask that so for say like a wildfire because pottery is fired at such a hot temperature. Does it have a tendency to survive where other things don't? Yeah, it often can, and there are artists that are playing with that now. So I know personally artists that have hidden greenware or functional work in very high fire risk areas with the intention of if there was a fire returning to that place to see if their work has been fired. Just to see. That's a taste. I love it. Yeah. Histories of, of, you know, sometimes that will also get destroyed if, I mean, wildfires get so hot, but there's a lot of interesting work happening in that realm right now. I think this is really interesting in the, in the fact that you're kind of incorporating movement and clay and performance 
out there in the ceramics world, since you guys are on the edge, you say there's people exploring. Where's the experimentation happening? Where do you kind of see like ceramics? I mean, it it probably goes. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Everywhere. But what are some of the things that you can maybe turn us to not knowing like, okay, we see the ceramic bowl, we see cooking and we see sculpture. Where else is it going? You say you're kind of moving in a performance sort of way, possibly. There's a lot. I mean, I know we had Raniel's show, which was amazing and very interactive as far as breaking down. That looked fun. Dancers and... People are doing some crazy things with clay. And I mean, they have been for a while, but I feel like the contemporary scene is extremely exciting. I mean, there's, there's artists that dig a giant ditch and fill it with clay. And then her practice is just moving in that ditch and moving the clay around. And then it's, it lives like that. Then there's other people that are pressing clay into just the creases of their body mm-hmm. and having that be a gentle object approach. It's almost like overwhelming in a very exciting way that clay is something you can do anything with. I think a lot of people maybe forget that part. Yeah. They think of it as one way, but to be interacting it hands-on with your body is a totally different thing. It can be, yeah, exactly. It's like, It's like a beautiful moment where it's like, I think more and more people are coming back to that. Like we need that of it's this body you can interact with, have this relationship with. And it's less about creating an object that you're acting upon or Mm -hmm. using. It's more about creating this relationship with this material that holds so much of human history and holds so much transformation in human ways and how can you honor that respect that and create work with that yeah it's like more about that connection I love that because I think that does come through if people know it or not if they are attracted to a certain piece or have a certain cup I know that I have a different experience with different cups and different Mm -hmm. artists here and the heaviness and just a different type of joy or outlook because I know who that artist is and you know, like it's, it's interesting to feel different types of objects and where they're, where they're at. So the small moments during the day that we forget. Yes. Gosh, I feel like we're, you know, those uh, PBS specials that go on forever <laughs> and ever and ever, but this is, I think is really cool. And if you have anything to add to it, Awesome, but I think this is a good little dip in the clay 101 here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Kat? I think I'm good. I'm, I'm absorbing it all. I know, me too. <laughs> I feel like I was in the coolest lecture, so yeah. hold on. <laughs> if you've made it this far, thank you, and turn this episode on to all of your friends that are interested in ceramics or clay or all of that, or the Sonoma Ceramics Studio, and this will probably be out, hopefully... Before Chili Bowl, but maybe not. And if you're curious about that, (laughs) Chili Bowl is a fundraiser where you're making 600, 600 bowls, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) With Chili. And it's our biggest one here to continue the thriving Sonoma Ceramics program. This will be too late for tonight, but we have our artist in residence, Haley, is it Jimenez? Mm -hmm. Haley Jimenez will be having an artist talk tonight, but stay tuned, folks. We're going to have her on this podcast and I'm sure Kat's radio show and get her voice and look into her art later in the spring and her show, which will take place in June, 2024, right here in our gallery. 
Right? All right. And remember, there's ceramics classes, there's ceramic studio memberships, there's ceramic everything. You can work from home and come here and fire it. There's all kinds of options. All stars. Thank you, Podcast All Stars. Thank (laughs) you. For sharing your knowledge. All right. Thanks, Kat. Thank you. Bye. Bye.